Hear these words from Psalm 85 this morning as God calls us to worship. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps a way. Beloved, we are people who are rooted in God's steadfast love toward us in Jesus. And what God does in his steadfast love toward us is he brings us to a sense of our sin and our need for Jesus. And what that process looks like is us coming and confessing and repenting of our sin and turning and running into the arms of Jesus. The heartbeat of the Christian life is repenting and believing the gospel again and again and again. And so let's do that together this morning. We're going to say this confession together out loud, and then after we do that, we'll spend a few moments quietly coming before our God and confessing our sin. But let's confess together uh, this morning and see God's grace to us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, In love, you have ordered every step of our lives. But we want to chart our own course. You have promised that all things work together for our good. But when things are not to our liking, we are easily angered and often try to run from you. Forgive us. Teach us to trust in your goodness. Convince us that in Christ, you are pursuing and loving us. Remind us that the cross and empty tomb overthrow sin and the grip it has on our lives. Remind us that the cross and empty tomb define and transform us. Help us cling to you because Christ has laid hold of us. All is grace. Amen. Now let's take a few moments to quietly go before our God, confess our sin, practice repenting and believing the gospel and seeing God's grace to you and me in Jesus. Gracious Heavenly Father, we confess all of these things in the hope of your mercy to us, which is fully and finally seen in your one and only Son, our Savior, Jesus Holy Spirit, we pray that you would work in us to repent and believe the gospel throughout the entirety of our lives. And we pray these things in the name of Christ, our Savior and our King. Amen. Beloved, God's steadfast love pursues us in his grace, shows us that we are forgiven in Christ. And so hear this offer of forgiveness, this assurance that what Jesus has done is absolutely real and absolutely true for you and for me. It comes from Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter 1 this morning. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved. You were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now let's declare what it is that we believe about what Christ has done and what it is that it means that the Holy Spirit has united us to Jesus. And so I'm going to ask the question and then let's respond together. Beloved of Christ, what is it we believe about Christ and our union with him? We believe that Jesus is truly God and truly man. Although he was truly tempted to sin, just as we are, he lived a perfect life without sin. He willingly became our sin on the cross, absorbing the just judgment that is due for our sin. In his death, Jesus defeated sin and death itself. Because of his victory on the cross, the grave could not hold Christ. Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended to the Father, where he rules and reigns, interceding for his people. Because of the Spirit, our lives are now in union with Christ. All that is true of Jesus is true of us. We have been released from the dominating power of sin. In Jesus, we are free to confess our sin without fear of punishment. We now live in confidence that there is no corner of creation his salvation does not claim. Our desire is to grow more and more like Christ. We long for the day when the last will be first, the lost will be found, and the curse will be no more. Heaven and earth reunited. Jesus is ours, and we are his forever. Good morning. It's good to be with you. I want to look with you this morning in the Old Testament at the prophet Nahum. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn there. The words are also going to be printed on your screen. We have a slide that will come up in just a minute. Just want to remind you, if you may be visiting with us for the first time, that we're spending this whole year looking at the scriptures and the story of the scriptures. And one of the ways that we are trying to hammer that into our minds and hammer that down into our hearts is that the Bible really gives us a four-part story. Creation, rebellion, redemption, and restoration. You've heard that almost every week this entire year. And one of the reasons why we're telling you that is because we often have grown up in situations in which the Bible is turned into a two-part story, rebellion and redemption. Matter of fact, I'd love to give you an example of that. Yesterday, I came to my office here at the church building, and on my desk was a magazine, a Christian magazine, and in that magazine, it uh, uh, offered and was advertising a new study Bible that was out in which uh, basically the advertisement was saying you can get an entire seminary education through reading this study Bible. And the punchline at the bottom of the ad was this. If you read this book, you will find 1,500 principles to live by. In other words, the approach to the scriptures is this. We read the Bible, we study the Bible to get a principle to live by. 
And what I'm saying is that the Bible is actually a story. It is not a book of principles in which you apply the principle to your life to get a particular outcome. It is the story of reality. And that story has four parts. And it is profoundly important if we are going to understand the Bible that we never grow tired of that four-part story and that we think through our lives, our relationships, our past, our present, our future, everything through the lens of those four parts. Otherwise, we're just basically reducing the Bible down into basic instructions before leaving earth. Otherwise, we're just looking at people in terms of rebellion and redemption. We need to get this four-part story into us in a deep way so that we can live out of that four-part story. Well, enough of that. So let's look at our scriptures together from the book of Nahum. I'm going to read. This is a collection of verses from this book. My assumption is that perhaps you've never heard a sermon or a sermon series on this book of the Bible. Maybe you haven't even read it. So I tried to put together verses that capture the heart of this book. So I'm going to read these verses to you as they come from God's Word in the book of Nahum. It's true. These words I'm going to read to you are true, and you can bank your life on it. So listen to these. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt. The earth heaves before him, and the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Would you pray with me? Lord, 
We thank you that you have given us your word, even this book that may seem to us to be incredibly obscure and based on what we just read seems incredibly abrasive and harsh. Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand your word. Would you deal with our preconceived notions? Would you enlighten us more and more with truth? Would you help us to understand who we are, who you are, what you have done in and through Jesus. Holy Spirit, make us alive afresh by the truth that is here that we'll look at this morning. Bring us to Jesus in new ways and make us to live by the truth of the gospel. We pray this, that you would get glory, Father, Son, and spirit, now and forever. Amen. Recently, I've been watching a show on Netflix called Lenox Hill. Lenox Hill is a hospital on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, and this documentary follows a team of doctors that are trying to do life professionally together. They are trying to look at the cases as a collective team. They are taking very difficult cases, very difficult patients, and they are trying as much as they can to build a hospital in which a team of doctors trust each other, work together, and aren't out just to make as much money as they individually can. They want to take care of patients. And they want to provide the best, brightest minds and bring that to bear on the people that they are trying to help. Toward the end of season one, one of those doctors finds out that he has cancer, cancer in his head. And he decides that, of course, because he's operating within this team, that he wants to tell the team that he has cancer. He's already told a couple of them individually, but it's the point in which he needs to tell these other doctors what's going on in his life. So before he tells this team of doctors, before he tells the whole team, there's a little monologue that takes place where it's just him and the camera. And this is what he says about cancer. This is what he says about his life. He says, you know, it's not that I have this weird, positive attitude of I'm going to beat this and I'm going to fight it. No, actually, I'm, I'm going to be a statistic just like everyone else. Although right now, I've got to figure out what statistic I am going to be. But I'll tell you this. I don't want to let the worry of my future destroy my present and his name is Mitch, and he goes on to say this. Here's the takeaway. This is what he says to the camera. The takeaway is this. It's a nice day. It's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day. And he goes on to meet up with the team of doctors. Now, as you hear that, I want to ask you this question. How would you engage that? How would I engage Mitch? How would you engage someone that just expressed to you what is going on in their mind and heart because of what's happening in their life? How would you engage that? 
Because surely you can understand that asking someone like Mitch with that life experience simple questions like, hey Mitch, if you were to die, would you go to heaven? Why would you go there? How would you get in? Surely you can understand that those type of simplistic responses minimize who this human being is. It reduces Mitch to this two-part story. It doesn't take into account that he is a whole person who is made in the image of God to start with. Besides that, Mitch's view of reality is simply the here and now. That's it. How in the world would you engage that? How would you engage him? Well, perhaps like this. We can affirm. We can affirm that Mitch was being completely honest. And we can find and say that's good. It's good that he was honest It's good that he values life. It is good that he values relationship because he's facing the reality of telling this team of doctors that he really likes what's going on in his life. He values relationship. What's also good is that he feels the brokenness of the world. And he recognizes that cancer, disease, is a great enemy. What's good is that he recognizes, whether he can explain it or not, that something is wrong. Now, something and many things actually need to be added to that which is good. In other words, what Mitch said in many of those ways is is good, but... He needs more. He needs a supernatural lens through which to view reality. He needs a supernatural slant on reality. Now, I think that this book of Nahum, God has a lot to say to us through Nahum about that kind of situation, situation that Mitch is in. I think Nahum can really help us understand how we can engage the world that we are living in because God is engaging us and he is engaging our lives through the prophet Nahum. Here's the point. This is the takeaway. This is what I want to show you from the book of Nahum because Nahum is all about one idea, judgment. And I want to show you from the book of Nahum that judgment is hard, but it is good. That's the takeaway. Judgment is hard, but it is good. Now, the first thing I want to explore to you is this. Explore with you is this. I want to think about Nineveh at a hundred. If that doesn't make sense, just give me a minute here. Nineveh at a hundred. Nahum writes these three chapters, these three short chapters, to the people of Nineveh. 
If you remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at the book of Jonah together. You might remember that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh and then reluctantly ended up going to Nineveh and ministering God's word and then sitting outside the city, acting like a two-year-old who didn't get his way. Remember that? Nahum writes to the people of Nineveh about a hundred years after Jonah had ministered there. Nahum writes these three short chapters. Roughly the year 650 B.C., a hundred years after Jonah was there. And he tells us something significant, even with verse 1. Look back at what verse 1 says. I'll read it to you. It says this. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Nahum uses these three words, book. In other words, Nahum wrote these three chapters and then sent it to Nineveh. He also uses the idea of not only a book, but also vision. You see, when God uses this idea in the scriptures, he's communicating that what Nahum wrote in this book, these three chapters, actually comes from God. That this was something, this vision was something that God gave to Nahum. Nahum didn't make this up. He simply received God's word in a vision. And he put that down into three chapters. It really is an oracle. That's even a further idea to help us understand this book. You see, an oracle means that it is not just from God, like the vision, but it is in particular, an oracle, oracle is an insight from God. It's insight into what is actually going on with reality. It's insight from God that not only applies to Nineveh, but applies to all people in all places at all times. This really is God's word. And he is giving us, God is giving us insight into reality. And that's what these three chapters are about. Now, the other thing that's interesting about the book of Nahum is that he is basically a poet. If you read through these three chapters, you'll find poetic language everywhere. Phrases and descriptions and even things that I read to you are, are poetic in nature. And what that means is that you don't read Nahum like your sudden link bill. I shouldn't read Nahum like my Verizon bill. No, when you read poetry, what happens is that ideas come to the surface. So you understand what Nahum is trying to communicate. And there are two ideas that come to the surface. Remember, the big one is judgment. But we're diving into that and explaining that. One of the ideas is this. There is an ultimate fact. The ultimate fact is God. When you read chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, what you find is that God is real. He is assumed. He is the ultimate truth, the ultimate being, the ultimate fact. God exists, and he is the center of reality. God is the one that defines what is right and wrong. God is the one who looks at how we relate to other people and says, this is right or this is wrong. We all have to live our lives based on what God thinks. And that means that ultimately, 
Ultimately, our lives are defined by our relationship to God. Our relationship with God is either good or or bad. But God is the ultimate fact. And he doesn't just look at us as individuals. He looks at us as communities. He looks at us as nations. He sees that people are interconnected. And he addresses us, not only individually, but also collectively. Well, the other idea and fact that emerges here is this, that God's upset. He's upset. He's upset with the people of Nineveh. Let me give you some verses. I read a bunch in our beginning, but I want to read some more. Listen to this. This is a smattering of verses from these three chapters that indicate that God is upset. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. In chapter 3, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? God is upset. Can you hear it in those verses? He is upset with the people of Nineveh. God looks upon them and says, you are a city of blood. He is poetically saying, look, you are a people who love to advance all of your purposes and you look at everyone as something to conquer. You are not afraid to shed blood. You are not afraid to go to war. As a matter of fact, your existence as a people is defined is defined by being willing to shed blood and conquer others. He even acts as though their disposition is that they look at everything as prey, that they have to find and hunt and attack and seize for itself. Look at the last phrase of the last verse of the last chapter. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? God is saying, that the people have acted in a way that doesn't honor him toward others over and over and over. God is upset. But know this, God never eagerly rushes to punish sin. God never eagerly rushes to punish sin. The first thought that we should have of God is always his goodness. The first thought that we should have of God is always that he is good. You see, it's evidence of our rebellion that we often think, first of all, that God is always upset and God is always angry. When the reality is we should always start with the truth that God is good. That God is intrinsically good. We wouldn't know what good is apart from his being. 
and that God is overflowingly good. His actions are good, even at times in which we don't understand them. God is good. But remember, he doesn't eagerly rush to deal with sin. God is patient. But sin does require judgment. Sin does require judgment. Just think about this for a moment. Just think about this for a moment. Can you imagine if the people that mapped out, put together, and carried out the plan for the Holocaust, can you imagine if those that planned it and carried it out end up ultimately in just the same way as those that were murdered? Would you consider that just at all? If those that planned the Holocaust, at the end of the day, what happens to them is that they just died, just like those that were murdered, and that's it. I hope that you would affirm that that would not be just at all. Sin demands judgment. What kind of world would we live in if sin wasn't ultimately dealt with and wrongs weren't ultimately addressed? Sin demands judgment. You see, the times in which we're living, we got this idea of cancel culture, and that doesn't work. That doesn't really fix anything. It doesn't really answer anything. Cancel culture is just the logical conclusion. It's the logical next step of living our lives in the political climate that we're in, in which everything is viewed as binary, either right, wrong. Cancel culture is just the next logical step. Because in a binary way of looking at everything, it's either this or that. And if I'm this and you're that, then I cancel you out. That doesn't work. That's not really addressing any type of problem. That's just a way to prop ourselves up and make us think that we are better than other people and that we can just block them out. This is real life dealing with sin and brokenness and rebellion. God is upset and he never eagerly rushes to punish sin. Here's a summary. Nineveh at 100, God is upset. God is going to judge sin because he has been patient. Because he is summoning us out of ourselves and into him. God is upset because he ultimately always deals with sin. Now, here's the second heading that I want us to think about together. God is moving toward us. He's moving toward you. He's moving toward me. He is moving toward us. And these three chapters show that abundantly. It doesn't just give us a snapshot of Nineveh at 100 and that God is upset. He is also moving toward us. Even when he is upset, he sent the prophet to speak these words to these people and send them the book. 
Here's how we know that God is moving toward us. God's judgment, the judgment that he is threatening upon Nineveh, is actually a protection for his people. Judgment is good. God is not only communicating that he's upset, he's communicating that he wants to protect his people and those that would find their hope and rest in him. Listen to these verses. This is from chapter 1 and chapter 2. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. He's talking to his people. Remember, they went into exile because of their rebellion. And God's saying in verse 13 of chapter 1, And now I will break his yoke from off you, and I will burst your bonds apart. He's saying, I'm going to set you free. He's saying, I realize that these people are afflicting you and putting you in this position in which you can't live. And I'm going to enable you to live the way I want you to live. In the same way that I'm calling them to live. In the way that they should live. Listen to this from chapter 2. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. God is restoring his people. Judgment is good. And it means that God is always interested in protecting his people so that even in judgment, there's evidence of his patience. There's evidence of him giving us time to come to our senses and give our lives to him. And ultimately, whenever he deals with sin, whenever he deals with the consequences of sin, it is so that his people are restored and freed and live the life that he has created them, created for them. Well, here's the second way we know that God is moving toward us. It's not just that he promises through this judgment to restore his people. It's this. There's an image in these three chapters that maybe seems a little strange since the main idea is judgment. There's an image that's given that may even seem out of place because the dominating tone of this little book is judgment. And it's found, this image is found in the last verse of the first chapter. It's the image that someone on the mountains in the distance is walking toward them. This is what it says. Behold, upon the mountains, Naaman is saying, look, upon the mountains, look, look in the distance. The feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. In the midst of judgment, there is a messenger that is coming, and this messenger is bringing good news. You see, this messenger is Jesus. This messenger is bringing good news. In the midst of judgment, there is good news. You see, we are supposed to, to connect these two ideas of messenger and judgment. Nahum can't talk to the people of Nineveh without bringing up the messenger and good news. He can't talk to the people of Nineveh without ultimately getting to Jesus. And Nahum can't even talk about judgment without talking about Jesus. You see, we can't ever, if we want to think biblically, think about judgment apart from Jesus. 
So whatever our preconceived notions may be about God and him punishing sin and judgment and and being upset, we can't ever separate judgment from Jesus. Now, I know that perhaps for some of you, the idea of judgment, the idea of judgment may not only be hard, but it might be absolutely repulsive. This idea of judgment may may be one of the things that keep you from seriously exploring Christianity or, or, or giving your heart to the living and true God and embracing Jesus and what he has done. It may be that this idea of judgment is repulsive to you. I get it. The idea of judgment is hard for me to take in. But if you're ever going to come to grips and really consider Christianity, you have got to think about sin in the way that God thinks about sin. If you're ever going to understand judgment, you've got to think about sin in the way that God thinks of sin. You see, here's the way God thinks of sin. God created you and me. He built us to live with him and to live for him. That's the way we were made. We were made to live our lives defined by God and responsive to what he says and to implicitly trust him and to know intrinsically that he is good and to know that he is with us all the time. But what happened with rebellion is that we turned our backs on God and we decided we wanted to make our own way. So what that looks like in our life is this. We try to develop our identity through work, through love, through achievement. And we could add many things to that, but these are things we've talked about before. We try to develop our identity through our work, through love, and through achievement. And that means that we work hard and we look for this idea of love and this person that represents this idea and we look to achieve more and more because we think that over time that will form our identity and who we really are. But what ends up happening is this. Those things, work and love and achievement, they actually only end up enslaving us. They end up enslaving us to guilt, to fear, and they really become the basis for us being driven every day. Think about it. Let the gospel go into your heart. Think about this from what God says about sin. You see, If I think that I can make my identity through my work and find ultimate meaning in my work, then I have this great fear that somehow something is going to happen at my job and I won't be who I want to make myself into through my work. You see, if I try to get my identity out of love and try to find ultimate meaning in love, that if something goes wrong in that relationship, then I have this tremendous sense of guilt 
Because that was the thing that was supposed to say who I am and give me meaning. If I try to build my identity and ultimate meaning out of achievement, then I'm always living in fear that someone is going to achieve more than me. Or that I always have this guilt of if I don't achieve something that I think I should. And you see, the reason I get out of bed every morning is that I'm driven by this idea that I've got to work for my identity. I've got to do my work because it gives me ultimate meaning. It means that I get up every morning and I have this idea of love and I feel as though I have to prop this up because I'm finding ultimate meaning there. An achievement, I've got to be driven to achieve because the more I achieve, the greater my identity. The more I achieve, the more I find ultimate meaning. And you see, God's saying that all of that stuff destroys you. It destroys you. You don't live a free life. You're in bondage. I'm in bondage. And if you're willing to go one step further in thinking about this, trying to find our identity and ultimate meaning through work or through love or through achievement, if you're willing to go one more step, those three things, and you can add many more to them, are really just, in shorthand, living for self and selfishness. It really means that our life is really about self. And friends, if you're willing to go one more step, the place where selfishness is ultimately located is hell. And most of us feel a lot of hellish things now because we know what it's like to be motivated and held captive by guilt and shame, being driven by these things all the time, achievement, love, and work. It is hell. It is hell to live for self. And ultimately, living for the self will land us in hell. But here's what it means to connect the idea of the messenger and judgment for those that are repulsed by the idea of judgment. There is good news for you. There's good news for me. The messenger is Jesus and he comes bringing good news. And let me tell you what that means. It means that Jesus crafts a perfect resume. It means that Jesus crafts the resume that we could never, ever craft ourselves. And he gives it to us. And what it means is that we receive the perfect resume of Jesus and we renounce the resume that we are trying to build through love and work and achievement. And we fight against guilt and shame and being driven by those things and that we receive Jesus' resume. That's the good news. And not only do we renounce our own crafting of our resume and how that works itself out in our lives in a zillion ways, 
We receive his resume and we live our lives from his resume for us. That's the gospel. That we receive what Christ has done and then live our lives as if our resume is perfect because we have the resume of Jesus. And that is freedom. And that is living our lives the way that we were made to live. That is living our lives with God and for God. Now, I also know that some of you grew up in a situation in which judgment was hyper real and that you have a heightened sense of God's judgment. And that means that you probably have a really, really strong, deep sense of what is right and what is wrong. And because of that, you have an even deeper sense of the consequences of something that is wrong. As a side note, isn't it always funny, at least this is true in my life, that the goodness of things doesn't weigh nearly as much as seemingly the badness of things? That I have a tendency to fixate on things that are sinful and bad and how bad things can be? And because of that, It means that you're always trying to do good and be good. And because of that, your relationship with God is basically based on the fact that you're afraid of him and afraid of what he'll do. And if we're going to connect these ideas of the messenger and judgment, then this is the message for people like you and me who struggle with this. That judgment is actually the way that we can understand the love of God. Judgment is the way that we can understand the love of God. You see, when Jesus was on the cross, he said these words. Father, why have you forsaken me? Actually, he didn't say father, did he? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, to be forsaken by God is hell. It is the ultimate judgment. Jesus was experiencing hell and judgment on the cross. Now, friends, the deeper the relationship the greater the effect of being forsaken. The deeper the relationship, the greater the effect of being judged. You know, as I drive around Greenville, I've discovered that there are people in Greenville who don't like my driving. And they oftentimes will let me know. So if a random driver decides that he wants to let me know that he's judging me and forsaking me, he can do that with certain hand gestures. There are times in which he can express that by getting really close beside me on my bumper. There are times in which random drivers can not approve of how I'm driving and judge me for that by staring at me. And you know what? I think about that for a few moments And then I don't think about that anymore at all. 
If I have a friend, a close friend, who judges and forsakes me, a close friend, you know, it hurts. As a matter of fact, if a close friend judges me and forsakes me, it probably means that I have to figure out things that I need to change in my life because surely there's something in what they're saying that's true. So it means that I might need to change the way I communicate or I need to change the way that I approach things or that I need to realize that at times things in this relationship are just about me or whatever it is. I need to change. If a spouse judges or forsakes and leaves, that doesn't just hurt. That doesn't just affect change. That changes the course of life. If I were to forsake Jenny and leave, it would change the course of her life. The deeper the relationship, the greater the effect. You can even think of it this way regarding spouses. When one dies, it leaves this gaping hole of not knowing what to do or to think or to say or how to live. The deepness of the relationship means the greater the effect if someone is judged and forsaken. Friends, there is no deeper and greater relationship in the world than the relationship between the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus was forsaken by the Father, and when the Father forsook his own Son, the effect of that for you and me is to know the love of God and to know that's how much Jesus loves you, that he was willing to be forsaken. And this is how much the Father loves you, that he forsook his own son so that you and me would never be forsaken. Actually, so that we would be brought into this relationship with the Trinity. And that we would never, ever be forsaken that we would have relationship with them that is deeper and more intimate than anything else and everything else is but a shadow. If you've grown up in an environment in which you have a hyper sense of judgment, please hear me. Judgment is where you understand the depth of God's love for you and the depth of the love of Jesus for you. Let's go back full circle. Let's go back to our conversation with Mitch. How in the world do we engage Mitch? How do we engage this doctor who has found out he has cancer in his head? How do we engage Mitch when he says, I don't have this positive attitude of I'm going to fight this and beat this. I'm going to be a statistic. Just depends on which one. I don't want to let the worry of the future destroy my present. It's a nice day. How do we engage Mitch? 
Well, we affirm and we say, it is good that you have a sense of the brokenness of the world. It is good that you are honest and being honest about your life and what this has brought out in your life what this disease has done and what it will do and what it's doing. It's good that you're honest about that. It's good that you're craving relationships. It is good that you have a sense that something is not right because of this disease. It is good that you want to live your life to the fullest now. It's good. But we also want to say, friend, You need God. We need God. We need a God. And there is a God who looks at the brokenness of the world and disease and sin and hates it more than we do. And because of Jesus, it's working to eradicate it. And one day it will be no more. And there is a God who wants us to live life to the fullest and have life abundant. And because of Jesus, we can have life abundant now and in the future. What this God has done through this good news is that the future doesn't really destroy or the worry of the future doesn't really destroy our present. The future actually brings hope into the present and power to live. It means that we have a God who has good news for us. That brokenness is real, but in Jesus, it has been answered. Beloved, Jesus is the messenger that brings us good news. Judgment is hard, but it is good And the good news that Jesus brings according to what this says here is that it is good news of peace. Reconciliation has happened and will happen. And one day there will be shalom. All will be made right. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for loving us even to the point of forsaking your own son that you would not Spare him so that we would have all things freely with and through and in him. Holy Spirit, work into our lives this good news and make us more receptive to it. Give us the power to live by it. For your glory we pray. Amen. Friends, know that in Christ all the judgment that you will ever face has happened. And that in Christ you have hope and that you know the blessing of the living God. So hear these words and try to live as if you actually believe that they're true. Hear God blessing your life. And know that what I'm about to say, this blessing has been bought by the blood of Jesus. Now the God of peace that raised Jesus from the dead, through his blood, he is eternally bound to you. And because of his blood, he is equipping you with every good thing that you need to do his will. It's even better. 
He is going to work in you what is pleasing in his sight so that one day when peace reigns, all glory will go to him forever and ever. Amen.